Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. My name is Bob O'Bannon. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at New Life. And uh, I invite you now to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. Uh, Some of you may have uh, seen this photograph uh, that was released uh, about a month ago. It's a picture of the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, and his coronavirus task force um, sitting in this room around a table, heads down, praying. Now this photo received some criticism online anyway by those who were concerned that perhaps this was all that the coronavirus task force was doing, was praying. Uh, Of course, I think Mike Pence and many of us would acknowledge that uh, more than just prayer is necessary in this particular time. But in a crisis like this, where we have a virus that is spreading out of control, where We have uh, reports that just since yesterday, there were 500 more cases reported here in the state of Indiana, where we don't know who has it and who doesn't, and even those who do have it might not know that they have it and might end up spreading the virus to others unwittingly. Looking at the situation and acknowledging all of these facts makes us feel a little bit helpless. And perhaps that's how you're feeling this morning about the current situation, helpless. You know, there's something good about feeling a little bit helpless because when people start feeling helpless, that's when they start to pray. Prayer is defined, can be defined in a very simple way. It's an expression of dependence upon God. It's an acknowledgement of our helplessness. And that's what we see in this picture. And that is something that we should see in the church as well. God's people expressing their dependence to God through prayer. What we're doing this morning is continuing in our Route 66 sermon series here at New Life for a year and several months. We've been moving our way through the Bible, one sermon per Bible book. We started in Genesis. We're headed toward Revelation. We've been in the letters of Paul lately. And uh, now we enter into what are called the pastoral epistles of Paul. These are letters that Paul wrote to uh, a young man named Timothy who was a pastor in a city called Ephesus. And so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus are known as pastoral epistles written to give direction about how life should be conducted in the church. So as usual, some background information here on 1 Timothy, written by Paul, as I just said, written probably between 62 and 65 A.D., and uh, written for the express purpose, basic theme of 1 Timothy, is giving direction for order in the church with a specific concern for false teaching, which shows up in all three of the pastoral epistles. Um, So we're going to be looking at chapter 2 here again, verses 1 through 6, which give special attention to the task of prayer. And so maybe, again, this morning you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed and a little bit helpless, and maybe you don't know what to do about 
this coronavirus situation, but let me encourage you to realize that there is something you can do, and it might be the most important thing that you can do, and that is that you can pray. It's true that only God can move mountains, but prayer moves God. And so with that confidence, we should go to him in prayer. So let's see what Paul has to say to us in this passage, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. Paul says this, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let's pray. (laughs) Our God in heaven, we look to you now for your Holy Spirit to come and bless the preaching of your word. Open our eyes, soften our hearts to behold and submit and believe the wonderful things that are here for us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, three questions that I want to seek to answer this morning from this text regarding prayer. And the first question is this, for whom should we pray as God's people? For whom should we pray? The answer to that is very simple. Everyone. Everyone. Look at verse 1. First of all, Paul says, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I don't think we need to read too much into the distinction among these four words that are used for prayer, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Uh, I think what Paul has in mind is that all kinds of prayers should be offered up for all kinds of people. Uh, The tendency that we all have is to pray for people who are like us, people who agree with us, people who have been nice to us, people who believe the same things as us. But what Paul here is saying is that we need to be praying for all kinds of people. Christians in the first century were largely made up of those who were poor, peasants, farmers, the uneducated. And their tendency would have been to pray for people who were basically like them. And so the Apostle Paul here is challenging them. Do not limit your prayers to just those who are like you. Pray for all kinds of people. Uh, J.C. Ryle says this, about prayer. We should study to be of a public spirit. We should stir ourselves up to name other names besides our own before the throne of grace. This is the highest charity. He loves me best who loves me in his prayers. This is one of the ways that we can show love to others, all kinds of people, by being in prayer for them. And then Paul goes on and he gives some examples of the kinds of people that we ought to be praying for. Verse 2, prayer should be made for all people, for example, for kings, he says, and all who are in high positions. So what Paul means here is that we need to be praying for our governmental leaders, our political leaders. 
And so the application here, I think, is pretty clear for us as Christians living in this particular time that we need to be taking this exhortation very seriously and lifting up our prayers for those in positions of authority in our land. We should be praying for President Trump, for Vice President Mike Pence and his task force, for scientists, for those who are working with the Center for Disease Control, for Governor Holcomb here in Indiana, for um, Mayor Dan Reidenauer here in Muncie. Um, It could be that you are at this time frustrated with some of the decisions that the government has been making. And maybe you feel like they've messed it all up in some way, but friends, it's easy to complain. It's better to pray, better to pray for your governmental authorities. Pastor Brian's prayer just a moment ago was an excellent model for how we should pray for our government officials. Pray that they would be given wisdom to make good decisions, that they would use their authority properly, that uh, the full resources available to us in science would be used to find a vaccine, to find a cure. Pray that this virus would be contained. Pray that it would be defeated. Pray for those who are fearful. Pray for all people in positions of authority to make decisions that affect this current situation. That's Paul's command, and that's how we should pray specifically in this time. But we might ask also why Paul here specifies governmental leaders as those who should be the recipient of our prayers, and we find that as we go on in verse 2. He says, uh, we should pray for kings and all those who are in high positions for a purpose that, he says, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so here we're beginning to see the scriptures give some instruction about the proper balance that should exist between the church and the government. A lot of debate has ensued about this particular question. We hear a lot in our country about the separation between church and state. Uh, A very simple way, perhaps, to summarize it, it would be this. The church should pray for the state, and the state should protect the church. There is a God-given function for the state, for the government. And one of its functions is to protect its citizens. You see that very clearly in verse 2. Pray for those in high positions that we might leave live a peaceful and quiet life. The government's responsibility is to make sure that its citizens can live in safety, free from disruption and harassment. That's a responsibility of government. Make sure that we can live quietly, peacefully. But then he goes on and he says, not just that we can live a quiet and peaceful life, but so that we might live a godly life, he says, dignified in every way. And so now Paul is starting to use religious terms here. To live a godly life is to be one who lives in submission to God, who lives by his or her faith, who lives in a way that pleases God. And what Paul wants here is that we pray for the government so that that could take place. The church prays for the state so that the state then protects the church, and in particular so that the church can teach, proclaim the gospel, and raise up disciples. And I've been impressed, actually, with some of the press conferences from Indiana Governor Holcomb. Uh, Back on March 23rd, he uh, mentioned that he considered houses of worship to be an essential service. 
and he uh, commended uh, faith institutions and faith leaders. He asked for prayer for pastors, which I'm very grateful for. And he even said that he desires this so that the word may spread. So notice here a distinction. I, I don't think Governor Holcomb has any intent of spreading the word through his position as governor, and he shouldn't desire that. We don't want the government teaching the word. We want the government to protect its citizens, but we do want the government to be in a position to protect the church so that the church can spread the word of God. That's part of the state's responsibility, and it seems like our governor is seeking to allow that to happen. We're talking about issues of religious freedom here. Governments should do what they can to protect religious freedom. There's a very important reason for that. There's a guy named Oz Guinness who has written about something he calls the golden triangle of freedom. And here's how he describes this golden triangle. There's three points to it. One, the first one is that freedom requires virtue. In order for freedom in a nation um, to be properly uh, uh, conducted or held, it requires a population of virtuous people. This is what Ben Franklin said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. People who aren't virtuous abuse freedom. So freedom requires virtue. But then the second point of the triangle is that virtue requires faith. For people to be truly virtuous, it requires faith in a uh, higher being, religious practice. John Adams said this, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. So virtue requires faith. And then the third point of the triangle says this, faith then requires freedom. And so you can see how these three points go round and round. Faith requires freedom. We need to be able to worship as we desire in accordance with our convictions. That produces virtue in the people. And then a virtuous people are able to use or uh, conduct themselves responsibly in a free society. There's a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville. He was an emissary from France who visited the United States in those early years of its founding. And he said this, this was his observation. He said, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. So we're seeing something here in 1 Timothy 2 about the responsibility of this state to allow the church to preach the gospel and to flourish. Now you might say right now, yeah, but aren't we living in a situation right now where the government has shut down the church? <laughs> and um, uh, that's not exactly the case, I, I don't think, uh, but certainly we are living in a very unique and unprecedented time. There are some clarifications, however, that need to be made. Yes, it's true that the government is saying that churches shouldn't assemble publicly. That's why we're doing this by video right now. But this is a temporary situation, not permanently. Uh, it's for a public health reason. And these restrictions are being given not just to the church, but to all kinds of institutions and organizations uh, in our culture. 
So we don't believe this to be an act of persecution on the part of the government. And in fact, we're able to worship freely, at least this way, online, uh, by video. So um, as we go forward, friends, let's not forget Paul's exhortation here. Uh, Perhaps this is a time, because it's so unprecedented and so unique, perhaps this is a time greater than any other when God's people need to be praying for the state. Because if the church neglects prayer for the state, we shouldn't be surprised if the state neglects to care for the church. So let's be serious about praying for kings, presidents, governors, mayors, and all of those in authority. So that's for whom we should pray. Secondly, why should we pray? Why should we pray? And the answer to that is very simple as well. It's because it is the heart of God to love all kinds of people. We worship a God who loves people, and so we pray for all different kinds of people as a reflection of the love of God for all kinds of people. Verse 4, Paul goes on and says, well, after verse 3, where he says it's good and pleasing in the sight of God to pray for those in authority, then he goes on in verse 4, this God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So here we learn something about the way a person is saved. Apparently uh, it is necessary to have some knowledge in order to be saved. Uh, In the Christian faith we don't believe that salvation is merely an intellectual thing, but it certainly involves knowledge it certainly, acknowledge, it certainly involves a, a, at least a minimum of knowledge content of who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, what he did, and how we can receive the benefits that he has accomplished for us. So there is a knowledge that is necessary through salvation, but in any case, this passage brings up um, kind of a thorny, tricky question, which is this, does God really want every single person to be saved? because that's what it seems to say, right? Verse 4, God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. Now, one of the problems with that is that we know that not all people are saved. We look throughout Scripture and we see many instances of people who aren't saved. If we just stay even within the book of 1 Timothy and go forward to verse 5, we see Paul writing this, says the, sun, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. So Paul here has in mind people whose sins have not been paid for, they haven't been forgiven, and so therefore they go to judgment. But if that's not convincing to you, we can go to another letter of Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 8 and 9. In very sobering and direct terms, Paul says, speaks of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus and who will suffer then the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So clearly the scriptures are telling us that not everyone is saved. But here in verse 4 of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, it says that God wants all people to be saved. So how do we resolve this? Well, there are a couple of options. One thing we could say is that God is unable to fulfill what he desires. 
He wants everybody to be saved, but he lacks the power or the ability to do it. Now, I don't think we have to spend much time uh, answering this. It should strike you as being absurd on the face of it. We know that nothing is impossible for God. Uh, This notion is completely inconsistent with what we see throughout Scripture about God's omnipotence. Isaiah 4, 27 says, God has purposed and who can turn it back? All throughout Scripture we see these declarations that God has a plan, He has um, uh, purposes that He has put forth, and nobody can turn that back. God does what He wants. He is always able to accomplish what He intends. Scriptures are clear on that. So I don't think we want to say that. I don't think we want to say that God can't do it. Um, Another option would be that God somehow submits himself to the will of men and women. That is that he allows the will of human beings to trump his will. That although his desire is to save all people, He cherishes the will of human beings so much that he allows their will to take precedence over his. And I think that's an unsatisfactory response as well. And one of the big reasons is because we find no biblical support for that at all. And also because we can look to a passage like John chapter 1 here where John says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This verse would seem to indicate that human will is not the deciding factor in whether a person is saved or not. So I think that answer is also not persuasive to this question. So how do we resolve it? I think it's actually fairly easy to resolve if we just look very carefully at this text. Remember what we said in the first point, going back to verse 2, where Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Remember what I said is that what that means is all kinds of people. Certainly we don't expect that what Paul is really meaning here in verse uh, 1 And two, is that he expected the Christians in Ephesus to get the Ephesian phone book out and open up to the A's and start going down the list praying for every single individual in Ephesus. We don't expect that that's what he means. What we understand is that he's talking about praying for all kinds of people. And I think the same thought then applies when we get to verse 4. Notice the phrase is the same in verse 4. Who desires all people? Verse 1, thanksgivings be made thanksgivings be made for all people. What Paul is talking about here is all kinds of people. God desires to save people from all walks of life, even kings and those in high authority who during Paul's day would have been viciously persecuting the church. The people who Paul might uh, least like or that the Christians might least like, uh, who might least likely be intended to pray for. What Paul is saying is, no, God even desires to save those who persecute the church. John Calvin says this, The apostles' meaning here is simply that no nation of the earth and no rank of society is excluded from salvation since God wills to offer the gospel to all without exception. 
God's desire to save is not limited to race or social class or gender or sexual orientation or politics or education or occupation. God has a heart for all kinds of people. He has a heart to save people who maybe we don't want to be saved if we're quite honest about it. And the challenge for us as Christians is that if this is God's heart, then this ought to be our heart as well. Do you have a heart for all kinds of people to be saved? Do you have a heart for your best friend to be saved, but also for your worst enemy to be saved? Do you have a heart for your mother and father to be saved and your brothers and sisters to be saved? Do you have a heart for Muslims and Jews and Buddhists to be saved? Do you have a heart for atheists and agnostics to be saved? Do you have a heart for Democrats and Republicans to be saved? Do you have a heart for those in ISIS and Al-Qaeda to be saved? Do you have a heart for Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden to be saved? Does your heart reflect God's heart that all kinds of people should be saved? This is what Paul is encouraging us to do. This is why we pray. We have a God who loves all kinds of people. And so we pray similarly. Last thing, how then should we pray? How should we pray? Paul goes on here in verse 5, and he mentions that there is one God. One God. Now that's maybe sounds kind of obvious. Um, most religious people believe in one God. We don't have too many polytheists anymore. They do exist, but uh, it was much more prevalent in Paul's day than it is now. Uh, but nonetheless, he's saying there is one God. And of course, we know that the Jews would agree with Paul here, and the Muslims would agree, the three great monotheistic religions who believe in one God. But the question that comes before us here is, how do we reach that one God? How do we connect with him? How do we communicate with him? How do we know him? And that becomes a problem because God is holy and righteous and transcendent and exalted and high above his creation. And you and I, the human race, we are small, we are finite, we are sinful. So how in the world is that chasm going to be bridged? How are small, tiny, sinful, rebellious human beings going to connect with this holy, exalted, transcendent God? And the answer to that question is there must be a mediator. There's got to be somebody who comes in between. That's what a mediator is. It's just simply a person in the middle, a person who comes in between two parties who are at odds with each other. Two parties who are in opposition, in hostility. Two rival parties who can't get along. A mediator comes in between the two and seeks to work reconciliation between those two. Now, we can only imagine what kind of mediator must be necessary in this situation. When we're talking about a holy God and sinful humanity, who is it that's possibly going to fulfill that role? To act as a mediator between those two. This is certainly going to require an extremely unique individual, right? This isn't just a job for anybody. This is a job for somebody uniquely qualified. And Paul tells us who that person is. Verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
Jesus Christ is the only one who fits that bill. He is the only one who can act as a mediator between us and God. Um, and that's because he is unique in at least two specific ways. One, Jesus is unique in who he is. That is, in his person. We believe Jesus is God in the flesh. The scriptures would teach that. We don't really see that in this passage, but in other places throughout scripture, like in the book of John, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Uh, he says to Philip in the book of John, Philip, don't you know when you see me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus has claimed to be God, the creator of the universe. That's who Jesus is, but he's not just God. Verse 5 tells us, this one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Paul tells us very clearly that this Jesus is a man. So he is God and man at the same time. Now what's very important for a mediator is that this person be someone who can represent both sides adequately. The more that the mediator can represent the opposing sides in an equal fashion, the better chances he has for working reconciliation. And so here in Jesus Christ, we have someone who is God. He can represent God to us, but also someone who is man, so he can represent us to God. And he is the only one in all the history of the world who meets that qualification. The God-man, Jesus is unique, qualified in his person to serve as our mediator. But it's not just who Jesus is, but it's also what he did. His work that makes him qualified to be a mediator. And we see that in verse 6. This man, Christ Jesus, gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is what Paul is testifying to. This is what the gospel testifies to, that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom. A ransom is simply a price paid to free captives and to free slaves from their captivity. And who are the slaves? Who are the captives that Jesus had in mind when he laid down his life and paid that ransom? That's you. That's me. We are the captives for whom Jesus paid a ransom. And it was an expensive ransom that Jesus paid. I looked this up trying to find out what was the largest ransom ever paid and I found out that there were two brothers in Argentina who were part of a very lucrative uh, grain trading company. In 1974 they were kidnapped and they were held for nine months and eventually a 60 million dollar ransom was paid for their release. 60 million dollars. And of course that would be worth a lot more in today's dollars. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to free people from captivity. But friends, that is not the greatest ransom that was ever paid. The greatest ransom ever paid was that paid by Jesus Christ in the shedding of his blood and the giving of his life on the cross for you and me. Peter says it wasn't with silver or gold. It wasn't with money that we were redeemed but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And friends, that ransom, Christian, that ransom was paid for you. Jesus offered up that ransom for you. And so that means the doors are wide open 
for you to communicate to Him. That means there is no blockage now. You can go to God and pray. You can talk to Him, and He will listen, and He will take your prayers, and He will use them for mighty purposes. Uh, Some of you might remember this story that Virginia Yip told. Virginia is a missionary that we support here at New Life. She's stationed in Shanghai, has done a lot of ministry in China. And she told this story of how she was part of a Bible study in China, and this living Buddha came to the Bible study. This was a man, a a Buddhist leader, and um, he came to the Bible study because he mentioned that he was... Uh, feeling kind of distant from his God, feeling kind of detached, like he didn't know really how to relate to this God. And he asked Virginia, he said, what would qualify me to pray to the Christian God? And the reason that he asked that question is because he was concerned that if he tried to pray to the Christian God, that he would mess it up, that he would do it wrong that he wouldn't get it right, and that he would make the Christian God mad at him. And he didn't want to displease this Christian deity. And so he was concerned. And he said, what would qualify me to pray to this God? And Virginia responded and said, listen, friend, you, you worship God as God, but Christians worship God as Father through the mediating work of Jesus. And so we don't worry about our performance. We don't worry about whether we get our prayers just right. We know that Jesus got it just right as our mediator, and that he is sufficient then to make open the way for us to pray to him. And Virginia's response was, that, or this guy's response was to just begin to well up in tears. He just had this emotional response. He just couldn't believe that God would welcome him so freely and graciously in prayer. So friends, let's not forget. Let's not forget as Christians what a great privilege it is to carry to God everything in prayer, as the hymn says. Let's not be complacent about that. Let's not forget what a great privilege that is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer during this time. Let it be said that we express our love for others by the way we pray for them. And we pray for all kinds of people. And we pray for governmental leaders in particular at this time. And we pray for them because God loves all kinds of people, and so we do too. And we pray through the mediating work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not forgetting that, yes, it's true that only God moves mountains, but the prayers of God's people through Jesus, move God to do amazing and mighty things in this world. What a great blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for opening the way for us to communicate to you. And I pray, O Lord, that you would make Christians throughout the world a praying people, that you would make Christians in the United States a praying people, that you would make Christians in New Life Presbyterian Church a praying people. Lord, that we would call on you for mercy and grace and that through our prayers you would do wonderful and mighty things, Lord. Thank you for listening and for hearing us and for all that you've done to make us have relationship with you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.